Good morning. Today's verse uh, is from, today's reading is from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had a need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Last week in my ACG, uh, Adult Community Group, I asked a question just to kind of get us going, get us warmed up a little bit and, and talking. And the question I asked was, if there was any point, any time in your life you'd like to go back to and revisit, relive, what would it be? And in my group, we were all over the place. Everything from, you know, reliving our preschool days and, and kind of the, the carefreeness and the joy of just playing all the time to graduate school and, and just the, the good time that that, that was to when we were first married and want to revisit, relive that, and maybe redo parts of it. Um, we're just all over the place, except no one said junior high or high school, right? <laughs> no one. And, and I understand that. Um, certainly don't want to go back to dating or to the uncertainty of where you're going to co- go to college or what you're going to do with your life. Glad to be past that. But there was certain parts of being in high school that I enjoyed and kind of frankly miss. Top of that list would be being a part of a team. Uh, I was a a swimmer and a diver in in high school. I know probably not as popular as the basketball team was, but we were a tight-knit group. I mean, we were a little bit nuts how tight-knit we were. We did everything together. Practices started at 6 in the morning. And after practice, we'd go eat breakfast together. And we had those grueling practices in the evening. For most of the season, I spent more time with the swim team than I did with my own family. And there was days I wouldn't even see the sun because we'd go to school and start swimming before the sun came up. And we'd stay and practice after school past when the sun went down. We were a tight-knit group. We had our kind of traditions. We had our our initiations, probably would have been called hazing today. Uh, and we wore these bright orange jackets. Uh, my school, we were the Union Endicott Tigers. And every other team in our school wore black jackets with orange lettering, but not the swimmers. We were different. Orange, blaze orange jackets with black lettering. I miss being a part of that kind of a team. I've been a part of other teams since then, you know, intramural teams in college, uh, church softball teams, things like that, but but nothing quite as tight-knit as that. I think we all want, long for, that sense of community, of being a part of a group that's intimate, tight-knit, connected, and close. In fact, I think that's a God-given need. It's a need that is, it comes from the fact that we're created 
in the image of God, and God is a communal God. God gave us that need, and He meets that need for us in and through the church. And the way I just set that up, it might sound like I'm saying the church is all about meeting our needs. Stop. No. Uh, that's not what I'm saying. The church does meet our need for community. Uh, but it does so by connecting us to something bigger and more important, frankly, than ourselves. Through the church and through the community of the church, we connect to the mission of God. God connects us to His church and to His mission. Those two things go, go hand in hand. You can't connect to the mission of God unless you connect to the church. And, frankly, you can't connect to the church without connecting to the mission of God. They're that connected. I love the way Christopher Wright, theologian, has said it. He said, it's not so much that God has a mission for His church, but that God has a church for His mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission. God's mission. The two are interconnected, can't be separated. The church and God's mission. In the passage that was just read for us from Acts chapter 2, we get to read about and hear about the early church and their experience of stepping out as a community and participating in this mission of God. And it says that they devoted themselves to three things. To the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to worship. Actually, it says the breaking of bread and the prayers. I think that's Luke's way of talking about corporate worship together. They devoted themselves to those three things, and it says God added to their numbers daily those who were being saved. Now on the surface, those three things that they devoted themselves to might seem like three good things, three maybe interesting things, but they're far more than that. For, for Christ's church on mission, these three things are essential. Teaching, fellowship, and worship. Since the fall, God has been on a mission to glorify Himself through the redemption of all things through His Son, Jesus Christ. And throughout the history of God's mission, He has been working in and through his people to bring that mission to completion. The whole Bible tells us the story of God's mission being carried out by God through his people in God's world. From beginning to end, that's the story of the Bible. Since the fall, God was on a mission to redeem Everything, as far as the curse was found, God was bringing His redemption to bear. And He was doing it through His people. You can see from the beginning, God narrowing His focus to a certain group of people who would carry this redemption on, this mission on. So, Adam and Eve's children, 
not Cain. It was going to be Seth. It was going to be Seth through whom God would work to bring this mission to bear. And on down the line, it, it was it was Noah, not the rest of the world. It was Noah. God was going to work through Noah's line to bring this mission to completion. And when Noah walked off the ark with his three sons and their families, God said, it's not going to be Ham. It's not going to be Japheth. It's going to be Shem. I'm going to keep working through Shem to bring my mission to completion. And on down the line from Shem comes Abraham. And God focuses in on Abraham. And he says, you're going to be special. You're going to be unique in my plan. I'm going to make nations out of you. Kings and nations are going to come from you. Your descendants are going to be so numerous, they won't be able to be counted, just like you can't count the sand on the seashore or the stars in the sky. He says to Abraham, I am going to bless the socks off you. But the blessing wasn't just for Abraham. It's for Abraham for the nations. Abraham and his descendants weren't to hoard the blessings. They were to be channels of blessings through the nations, to the nations. So God says to Abraham, through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. That call, that commission gets passed on to Abraham's son, Isaac, and then to Jacob, and then to Jacob's sons, even though they were Wow, dysfunctional, right? And Jacob's sons find themselves in Israel or in Egypt. And they grow and grow and grow over 400 years into a vast, vast number. And God calls them out of Egypt, redeems them from slavery, brings them across the Red Sea into the promised land. And God says of Israel now, You're my treasured possession. You're my people. And I'm making you to be a kingdom of priests. What do priests do? They serve God and they minister to others on God's behalf. If Israel was to be a kingdom of priests, who's the other that they were supposed to be ministering to? It's the world. It's the nations. God was blessing Israel with his presence, with land, with prosperity. And they weren't supposed to hoard it. They were supposed to share it with the nations, to bless the nations on God's behalf. As you read through the Old Testament, you realize that's not how the story played out. The the rest of the Old Testament is basically a chronicle of Israel's failure to live up to this call, to be a blessing to the nations. They were supposed to be a unique people. And yet, turn after turn, they, they disregard that. And they say, we want to be like the nations. Uh, all the nations, they have a king. We want a king, like them. All the other nations serve and worship multiple gods. We're going to adopt their gods and worship their idols. The Bible says Israel followed in all the detestable practices of the nations that surrounded them. And they disregarded their call to be a holy people, 
a people characterized by, by love and community and justice and righteousness and care and instead chose violence and oppression and wickedness. But even through all of that, there was a faithful remnant who didn't disregard God's call, who maintained fidelity and love for God, and out of that faithful remnant, a shoot would come up. The root of Jesse, Jesus, who would be the Israelite who was faithful, who kept covenant, who would be a blessing to the nations. And Jesus gathers around Himself the disciples. In a way, a new faithful remnant. Twelve disciples, just like there was twelve tribes of Israel. Signifying that this is a new foundation, a new start for a new Israel. And the New Testament church is birthed. This new Israel. And it's blessed by God with His presence, with Christ's presence among us, with the Spirit being poured out, with intimate fellowship with God, with forgiveness of sins, with salvation. But just like Israel of old, it wasn't supposed to be for just us. The blessings are to be shared with the nations. That's the context, I think, of Acts chapter 2. When we read about what the church did, it's against this background of her calling to be the missional people of God. To be the community of Christ followers who had this ongoing call to be a blessing to the nations, to participate in God's mission. So with that background, with that backdrop, look again at these three things they devoted themselves to, and I think they take on a kind of a new significance. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. You know, since the beginning, the foundation of God's people, God's people, the community of faith, has always held story, has always held doctrine to be essential to defining who they are and to their mission. If you were walking in ancient Israel, you'd probably come across frequently these piles of stone. They were called Ebenezers. They were altars of remembrance that Israel would erect to signify God's work on their behalf. So when they came across the Jordan, they put together 12 stones. And when their children asked, what do these stones mean? They were going to tell the story. And this pile of stones, this altar, was about that story. And if you stayed there long enough, you'd celebrate with them feasts that were all about recalling how God had brought redemption, salvation to them, brought them out of Israel, brought them across the Red Sea, provided for them in the wilderness. That was their identifying story. And out of that story, out of that story, they were able to make Theological assertions about God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love. The Lord your God is a jealous God. And out of those theological assertions, those doctrines, 
float away of life. Because God is jealous, because God is the one and true God, we shouldn't worship other idols. Because God is loving and gracious, we ought to be kind and loving and compassionate. All these things were held together by that grand story that they were supposed to remember and draw their life from. And it's same in the New Testament. The church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching because that was the story. The story of Jesus born. The story of Jesus working miracles, bringing forgiveness. The story of Jesus crucified, risen, and ascended. The apostles committed that story first orally to the church, saying, here's what happened. And then eventually they wrote it down so that future generations wouldn't forget the story. And they wrote letters drawing out the theological implications, the doctrines of that story. This is what Jesus did and this is what it means. And here's how you ought to live in response. And the church dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching, to knowing it and understanding it and living it. It was central to the task of the early church and it's just as central to our task. Our task of being God's missional community of faith. People who live on mission with God. I think there's at least two temptations regarding doctrine and theology nowadays that we need to avoid, be aware of. Uh, The first is to turn or askew doctrine and theology altogether as being too heady, too cold, too intellectual, and focus more on things like loving and evangelism. Well, to begin with, that is an entirely false dichotomy. It's like you have to choose between mind and heart, and no, they're held together. I remember one time I was in my grandma's house with my parents. My dad is also a pastor, and uh, we have very different takes on some things. And we were having a discussion. My mom would have called it an argument. And uh, it was great. We loved it. But later, my grandma came to my mom and said, and you have to understand, I come from a kind of a, a tradition in which well, you're suspicious of anything you learned from a book, okay? Uh, it's that kind of church tradition. And my grandma came to my mom and said, you know what, I'm worried about Dan. He's got too much book learning. Um, I've given my grandma lots of things to worry about. I hope my book learning isn't one of them. But in her mind, book learning turned your heart cold. It engaged the mind, maybe, but it it led you astray from your core convictions, from your love for God. And to be honest, for some, that has been true through the ages. But it shouldn't be. The more you know and love and study the doctrines of Scripture, the more you love God, the more your mind is engaged with the grandeur of who God is, with the depravity of who I am the more I ought to appreciate His grace and His unconditional love. And my heart should be warmed. And I ought to be compelled to tell others about this. 
That avoid that false dichotomy as though you have to choose heart or mind. Let your heart be stirred by the great truths of theology, of scripture, of doctrine. Second temptation that I think we need to avoid is trying to soften theology or at least the hard edges of theology to make it more appealing to the world and diminish the hard claims of scripture. That temptation is born maybe out of a a good impulse that we want to communicate with the world. We want to make the church appealing to the world, but discarding the teaching of scripture, discarding the apostles teaching. Well, it's biting the cyanide capsule. It's committing suicide as a church. The church's reason for being is mission. And if you empty the church of doctrine, of teaching, well, then there's no more gospel to share. No more good news to preach. It's like a doctor running into a battlefield to treat the wounded, but discarding his medical kit because it's slowing him down. He gets to the wounded, but now he has no medicine to give. No bandages to treat with. No instruments to perform surgery. If we discard the teaching, we have no help to offer the world. The church, if it's true to its mission, will always be devoted to the apostles' teaching. To knowing it. To understanding it. To loving it. And to living it. So the early church was devoted to it. They were also devoted, de- devoted, devoted to fellowship. Uh, the word is actually koinonia, and it's a much deeper word than what we've made it. We talk about fellowship dinners and fellowship halls, and those are all good things, but frankly, they've become kind of shallow things. The word koinonia was a deep, meaningful word. It was fellowship. It was deep friendship. It was communal sharing. It had all kinds of implications for life. And it was the mark of the church. Again, it always had been. The people of Israel were called to be a a contrast society that stood out from the rest of the world by how much they cared for one another, how much they loved one another. The book of Leviticus tells the people of Israel, don't take vengeance on your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't be known as a wrathful, vengeful community. Be a loving, caring community. That call to care was actually written into Israelite code, into law, so that the person who owned a field wasn't supposed to glean the whole field, but leave the edges untouched so that the poor could come and take that. And those who were in debt, that debt was forgiven every seven years. And then the year of Jubilee, every 50 years, was like a giant reset button when family lands went back to the family, even if it had been sold. And there was a great leveling of society and care for one another. The poor were cared for. Oppression and injustices were not a thing. That's how it was supposed to be. That's how it was supposed to be in the church as well. The church was called, is called, 
to be a contrast society. It took that call very seriously. You can read in ancient literature about how much the church stood out in its care for its members and for its community. In the 4th century, the Roman Emperor Julian the Apostate, who was no friend of the church, had to concede that Christians had a special advantage. He was trying to kind of woo people back to pagan religion. Constantine had turned the Roman Empire towards Christianity, and now Julian the Apostate was trying to woo people back to pagan religions. But he said the Christians have this distinct advantage because of their loving service, even to strangers. He said it's a scandal that not a single Jew is a beggar and that the Christians care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. They stood out because of their koinonia, their dedication to fellowship and to care. That's exactly as Jesus wanted it to be. He said people are going to see you and see your love for one another and know that you're my disciples. And it was entirely different from other religions that were popular in the day. The mystery religions of the Greek and Romans was all individual. It was all private. It was all about internally connecting with the mystical or with the divine. But the Christian church was different. It was communal. It was about community and koinonia. Our world desperately needs to see the church live that out. Maybe more than ever, because nowadays individuals live in such isolation, alienated, alone. They need to see the people of God modeling something different. Now here's the hard truth. Many of us today are shirking our duty to the fellowship, leaving others to bear burdens that they shouldn't be forced to bear alone. And many of us are forfeiting the joy of fellowship, bearing burdens alone that shouldn't be. I remember when Lynn and I first got married, uh, we moved to Chicago. We, we got married, took a honeymoon, came back, packed the moving truck, and moved. And the next day started new jobs, and I started graduate school. We knew no one in Chicago. No family, no friends, no church. And the first few years of marriage are hard. <laughs> and we didn't have a community. We didn't have a fellowship. Until eventually, through our church, we met Mike and Angie, and then Ron and Michelle, and then other Christians like Brooke, like John Erickson. And it was such a relief. I was carrying that burden of feeling like I was not living up to the call to be a good, loving husband. It was a burden that was hard and heavy. It was a burden that my friends were able to bear with me come alongside me, encourage me, and lift me up. And it was a life-changing fellowship. Fellowship has always been crucial to the mission of the church. 
don't float around the edges of community here. It's easy to do. You can show up on Sunday, worship, leave, but don't. Find community. ACGs are a great on-ramp to community, a great way of connecting with others, small groups, men's Bible studies, women's Bible studies. Just don't float. Connect with people. Maybe you've been here for, for 30 years and you've got your group of friends that you've had for 30 years. Fantastic. But are you inviting others to come into that community, to enjoy that koinonia? Are you bearing others' burdens, allowing them to bear yours? Don't float. Fellowship is crucial to the mission of the church. Because mission isn't just about going and telling. It's as much or maybe even more about being. Being the people of God before a watching world. The early church devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles and to the fellowship and to worship. Again, it says breaking bread and prayer. But literally, it says the breaking of the bread and the prayers. I think that's Luke's way of pointing us Well, to this, to this corporate meal, which is the centerpiece of Christian worship, where we remember and celebrate the atoning death of our Lord Jesus Christ. The church did this. They worshiped together as the community of faith. The church on mission has always done. If you go back to Israel, the centerpiece of their religion, of their worship was the temple. But the temple wasn't supposed to be just for Israel, was it? It was supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations. The church and her worship isn't just for the church. Acts 2 again says that they were praising God and having favor of all the people. And God added to their number daily those who were being saved. They were praising God. And the joy of worship, the joy of our worship, ought to draw people in. Ought to say to them, they're experiencing something profound. They're experiencing God. They're seeing His glory. They're reflecting back His praise. That's what we were created for. And I want it. Our worship is for God, but it has an evangelistic component to it. It draws people. It draws people. Even today as we approach the Lord's table, again, that centerpiece of Christian religion, of Christian faith and worship, we're reminded that as we do so, as we take and eat and drink, we proclaim the Lord's death. There's a proclamation element to Christian worship. We proclaim it yes to ourselves so that we never forget His death for us. But we proclaim it for others who don't yet know of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. We proclaim it in this simple act of eating and drinking. The church, the community of faith, God's missional people have always been about worship. It's central to who they are. The centrality of mission to the church is the context for everything the church does. 
We were made for community. And we find that in the church. Wonderful community. We were also made for something bigger than our own puny happiness. Bigger than our best life now. We were made to participate in the ongoing mission of God. And God gives us both community and purpose here in the church. I pray that by God's grace, He'll find us to be good stewards of both. Of both this community and that call to be His missional people. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank You. I thank You for Your grace. I thank You for the grace that calls us specifically to be a part of a people. That's to wander through the life of a Christian alone and isolated, but to connect. To connect with Your people through Your Spirit. Father, we pray that we'd be good stewards of this community, that we'd value it and treasure it. It is Your bride And that we'd understand its purpose isn't just to serve us, but to bear witness to the world. Father, we pray that you would equip us for that. We pray that you would transform our hearts so that we're able and willing and love that call that you've placed upon us. Again, we thank you for including us by your grace in your wonderful, grand, redemptive purposes. Thank you. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay.